This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy and I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you're doing all right wherever you happen to be. Don't forget to subscribe to this show wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. So my guest today is Paul Theroux, author of a new novel called Burma Sahib. All of this experience gave me something to write about. I thought, I now see how the world is working. And I, I had a subject, which I hadn't, hadn't had before. To a very large extent, the same thing happened to Orwell. So Blair, the policeman, quit after five, after five years. He had a book. He had a chunk of experience. Each of his experiences give, gave him subjects for his books. The same thing happened to me. The other thing that happened to him and happened to me and happens to a lot of people is when you go away from home and you don't have people breathing down your neck and asking, what are you going to do with your life? And did you go to church? And uh, are you in a state of grace and all of that? And how are you going to make a living? You find out who you are. You're actually doing what you want to do. It's a process that Jung calls individuation. And this process happened to Eric Blair when he was in Burma. He found out who he was. He wasn't a policeman. He was a, re he was a rebel. But being away from his parents, being away from England, being among all these people, showed him who he was and what he wanted to do. It, and it, it showed me, you know, all those years ago, you know, 60 years ago, I discovered what it was I wanted to do. All right, you guys, that was Paul Theroux. His latest novel is called Burma Sahib, available from Mariner Books. Burma Sahib is a riveting story. It explores one of English literature's most beloved and controversial figures, George Orwell. And in particular, it explores the early years that Orwell spent as an officer in colonial Burma, years that transformed him from Eric Blair, the British Raj policeman, into George Orwell, the anti-colonial writer. My conversation with Paul Theroux is coming up in just a couple of minutes. A quick reminder that I do a weekly email newsletter. You can subscribe over at bradlisty.substack.com. It is free. The newsletter is pretty simple. I will let you know on a weekly basis about the latest episodes of this podcast. 
I also share a list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if that sounds good, head on over to bradlisty.substack.com and sign up. If you are a regular listener of this show, if you get something from it, if you appreciate the work that I do, if you are a lover of book culture, I hope you will consider joining the Other People Patreon community at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep this show going into the future. You can get some gear, merchandise, prizes, that sort of stuff over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. The Other People Podcast has its own monthly book club. Did you know that? You can sign up at the show's official website, otherppl.com. It's just $9.99 a month. That is less than the cost of a paperback. You get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. I interview book club authors on this show. So if you want to sign up for the book club, just head on over to otherppl.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Mary Sue Rucci Books, publisher of the best-selling novel, The Storm We Made by Vanessa Chan. The Storm We Made is the official February pick of the Other People Book Club. It is a dazzling saga about the horrors of war, the fraught relationships between the colonized and their oppressors, and the ambiguity of right and wrong when survival is at stake. That's The Storm We Made by Vanessa Chan, available from Mary Sue Rucci Books. All right, so my guest once again is Paul Theroux. His latest novel is called Burma Sahib, available now from Mariner Books. Paul Theroux is the author of many highly acclaimed books. His novels include The Bad Angel Brothers, The Lower River, and The Mosquito Coast. And his renowned travel books include Ghost Train to the Eastern Star, and Dark Star Safari. Paul Theroux lives in Hawaii and on Cape Cod. I am very pleased to have him here on the show for the first time and to have had the opportunity to speak with him about his life and his work. So here we go, ladies and gentlemen. This is my conversation with Paul Theroux and his new novel, One More Time, is called Burma Sahib. It's why I relate to it. In 1963, I joined the Peace Corps and went to Central Africa. And I had been going, I was planning to go to medical school, but it was Vietnam War was starting. I was about to be drafted. I thought, I'm going to get out of here. I, I spent six years in Africa altogether. After the Peace Corps, I stayed there. And my character was fixed. I mean, that period of time in Africa changed me. It gave me a direction. You know, Joseph Conrad went to Africa also in the 1890s. And he said, before I went to the Congo, I was a mere animal. So Conrad's saying the same thing. I'm, so this travel can do it. It did it with Orwell. It's funny that he puts that in Burmese days, the short period in everyone's life when his character is fixed forever. But he doesn't write about himself in Burmese days. The main character in Burmese days is not a policeman. He's a timber worker in love with a woman. The woman rejects him and he kills himself. Well, that wasn't Lowell's experience at all. So, Why do you think he avoided it? He was embarrassed. He was ashamed. He was ashamed of being a policeman. He spent five years 
working for the British Raj, whipping people, hitting people, arresting people, knowing that he had privilege as a white man, uh, a member of a club, but he knows that Burmese couldn't join the club. Very shameful. After, you know, he had a good salary. He had servants. And he, he says that in uh, The Road to Wigan Pier, I used to kick my servants. I'm ashamed of myself. I used to kick it. And he says, kick my servants and arrest people and whip people. You know, it was a horrible job that he had. And his shame was so great, he felt he had to atone for it. So after Orwell, uh, Blair actually was in Burma for five years, he left. He became a tramp. He became a dishwasher. He wrote about it and changed his name. And when he wrote about Burma, he wrote a kind of H.G. Wells, Somerset Maugham novel. He didn't write the novel that he was that he should have written, and one that he that he knew he he ought to have written. But he kept alluding to it throughout his life. It was a, not only a formative period, but it it made him, it made Blair into George Orwell, and it made him anti-colonial. It made him stoical. It made him hate authority. He had a lot of authority. I mean, he could do anything. He supervised hangings. He, and later he became against the, the death penalty. So it was a profound change in him. After Burma, he never owned a house. He never owned a car. He never made any money until the very end of his life. He was always underpaid. He was just writing for... Um, the Tribune, small newspapers, he, and, and writing novels that he didn't like. And at the very end of his life, he read a novel called We by Evgeny Zamyatin. It's a book about the future. And he got the idea to write 1984 from, from that book. 1984 is it's not exactly plagiarism, but the books are quite similar. In, in We, the Zamyatin book, which was published in 1926, the, the, the dominant figure, the tyrant, the dictator, is called the benefactor. The benefactor. I'm going to look after you. I'm the benefactor. And then, of course, in 1984, it's Big Brother. In We, everyone has a number. But it's very similar, very sim tyrannical society. But anyway, so, so yeah, it was profound. And it was hard for him to quit too, because his father had been a, um, a civil servant in India. He'd been, he was in the Indian civil service. He was an opium dealer, opium supervisor, opium agent actually. And he was the one who suggested that his son, Eric, join the British Raj, do the family proud. Also, Orwell's family lived there. He very rarely talked about his family, but the family, they were colonialists. They, they were in the timber business. They, they, they were in the rice business. His grandfather was a French emigre. He was from northern France, and he, um, he went to Burma, got into shipping, and then timber, and then went broke. Orwell never, never talked much about them. It, it was a big secret there that he had relatives who were there because the relatives were not only not English, but they intermarried local women. And marrying local women was a very bad thing to do if you were a British civil servant. Even in 1997, when I was in Hong Kong, I was writing about the handover. 
many people told me that if you married a local woman in Hong Kong, a British civil servant married a local woman, um, they they didn't advance in the civil servant. So it was, it was racist. I mean, and we know that that the colonial system is basically a racket. It's a racist thing, and all of this brought shame to Orwell. So when he wrote about it, when he wrote Burmese Days, he was trying to write a popular novel, and the novel was, you know, people praise it, but. It's not a very good novel, and Emma Larkin praises it. I'll tell you, there's not much, not much happening in that novel. It's kind of, um, it's like making up a story. He's not drawing a lot on his own experience, except club life, the, the club life that's in Burmese days. You know, the guy's swearing, and they reject a local guy as a member, all of that. That's, that's you know, drinking, getting drunk, and so forth. That's true to, that's true to it. But he doesn't talk about being in Moulmain. He doesn't talk about being in Rangoon. He doesn't talk about his uh, Mandalay, which he knew pretty well. He doesn't talk about the Delta, where he spent months and months. So, you know, they, so I did it. <laughs> I thought, well, this is, um, uh, he didn't do it. No one else is doing it. The shortest chapter in any biography of Orwell is the chapter about Orwell in Burma, because they don't, they don't, connect the dots. It's just there. They say, well, we could speculate, but we'd rather not. That's what I think is so interesting because I think most casual readers think of George Orwell. They think of Animal Farm. They think of 1984. They think of the texts that they had to read in high school or college, but not everybody knows his biography. Not everybody knows how he was formed. And the thrill of reading your novel is to get to inhabit a fully imagined uh, version of that part of his life and to bear witness to the kind of the radicalization of a man and to, and the radicalization of a man who traveled a pretty great distance, because as you say, this is a cop. This is the son of colonialists. This is a guy working for the British Raj. This is a guy overseeing hangings. Like he could not have been deeper into the weeds when it comes to uh, colonialism and all of the ills that go along with it. And then to become who we know as George Orwell, writing books like Down and Out in London and Paris, 1984, Animal Farm, and so on and so forth. That's a great distance traveled. And it's just interesting to get to read about his awakening. And I think that You've done a really incredible job with period detail, with dialect, with with really bringing to life that period and that place. I have to believe that your travels there were helpful, and that you did a lot of research as well. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. I've I've been to Burma four times, and I first went there. I was a teacher. I was a college professor in Singapore in the nineteen sixties. So in nineteen, when I had some money. I'd always wanted to go to Burma. I went to Burma in 1970, when it was still very colonial-looking. It was decaying, and um, and a lot of the the period detail was still there. The buildings, the streets, the streets had the names of the streets were changed, but they were pretty much the same. I was also going to say, apropos of what you said about Orwell there supervising hangings and. Uh, whipping people and all that, and arresting people, many of whom he knew were innocent, you know, I mean, um, uh, or they'd been set up. He was 19 years old 
when he started. He was 19. What were you doing when you were 19? You certainly were not a policeman in a far off country with a lot of power and a gun. You were probably in college. I was. And 19. So he was there five years. He left. You know, the, Orwell's life was very short. He died at the age of 46. So the 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 arc of his anti-colonial was radical. You you're quite right in saying he was radicalized by being in Burma. But it's a very short time from, you know, he left when he was 27. And then he had, you know, less than 20 years of writing. And he worked, he really worked hard. In addition to 1984 and Animal Farm, there's five other novels. There's Coming Up for Air, there's A Clergyman's Daughter, there's Keep the Aspidistra Flying. There's, um, you know, I mean, and lots of journalism. So he worked very hard, but was very, very poorly paid for it. At the end of his life, when 1984 came out, he thought he was in the hospital, actually. He wrote it. He was very sick with tuberculosis at the end. And he thought, uh, if I get married, maybe it will extend my life. He married Sonia and he died three months later. She became a very rich woman. So <laughs> there you are. But but yes, he was radicalized by it. And it's a, it, you know, it's a dramatic story. I don't think enough is made of it. I mean, I think that, he, that, that, that that experience made him the way a radical experience can make someone. But, but he was deeply ashamed of it. He, he, and he felt, he even says, I mean, he, he said, I had, to, I had something to atone for. So his atoning took the form of being a pamphleteer, being a left-wing intellectual, and fighting in the Spanish Civil War where he was wounded. He was shot in the neck. During the Second World War, he wasn't physically fit to, um, to, to, to serve in the army, but he became a, 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 an air raid warden and he wrote about the bombing. So he, he was a very brave man, actually, and, and a, a kind of, I won't say saintly, but he had this aura of power, of spiritual power that he had got from, from these five years being in the cauldron of the, of the, of the British Raj. Well, you know, as somebody who was raised Catholic, as I think you were as well, I yep. can relate to, or I can understand, I think, emotionally, how his entire career could have been fueled by this sense of mission and this sense of needing to atone. Uh, not that he was a particularly religious man, as I understand no, no, it. No, he was not religious at all. And as a matter of fact, he was stridently anti-Catholic. He really hated Catholics. He said Catholics are worse than Jews. He thought he thought the Catholic Church was a despotism. And despotism was always at the forefront of his mind. The despotism of colonialism, the despotism of the Catholic Church, the despotism of the Soviet Union. He thought that Stalin was a monster. And so he was an anti-communist um, because of that. But no, he wasn't spiritual. No, he wasn't religious. What was he? And what was his the religion of his youth and his family? Was he raised with Church, Church of England? Church, Church of, of England. England. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he went to he went to Eton College. If you go to Eton College, my kids went to similar schools in England, and every day you have prayers. You have, you go to go to church every Sunday. You have prayers every. You start the day with prayers, and you study the Bible, religious knowledge, RK. So, so he he was saturated in the Bible, saturated in Anglicanism, but 
He rejected it. Well, it, it's really interesting to think that one of the great writers, the great anti-authoritarian writers in the history of the world was a cop and a colonialist. Like there's, what's the, I always forget, I always botch the phrase, but there's no one more devout than the recent convert. Uh, it almost takes somebody who has had the, you can, you can see the logic in how somebody who had had his set of experiences would be the writer to write best about these horrors because he himself had participated in them. Yeah, there's a French expression, prostitutes who become nuns, they're the worst. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, I mean, it's yeah, working well, in kind of a reverse, but that's the general idea. Yeah, they become very, yeah. But he was also disappointed. I mean, in, in, the, um, in the Spanish Civil War, he was a Trotskyite there, and the Trotskyites were targeted by the Stalinists, and he saw them, he saw the, them um, being undermined, and he saw this is that in a revolution, a revolution is, is a very corrupt thing. Uh, you think you have a revolution. This is sort of the message of Animal Farm, really, um, the corruption of, of power and how you know there's a there's a Trotsky figure and a Stalin figure in Animal Farm, and it, and you know it's uh, some. Some pigs are uh, more equal than others and all that business. But he was a very disappointed man politically. And so it made him, it fueled his indignation and his writing. I mean, he's a fantastically good writer. I would also say that, you know, something that we haven't mentioned that you have mentioned was, although he did have this uh, experience as a, as a policeman, as a, you know, in a, in a position of a very young and having a lot of power, he also had a lot of fun there. He went there at the age of 19. He had left Eton College and joined the, the colonial service. He had had no experience with women. Virtually, he went to an all-boys school. And he went from Eton directly to Burma. He had a girlfriend, but, you know, one of these, you know, frigid, rather upper class, you know, don't kiss me, that, that kind of thing. And he was infatuated with it, but there was no sex. In Burma, he was constantly with women. He alludes to it a lot. And as far as drinking, he, his, his mates, you know, the, the, the big drinkers, he was a member of a club. And Rangoon was full of brothels. Mandalay, same thing. He had an affair with a married woman, which I recount in the book. That, you know, he, it, it wasn't just... Your characters change by realizing that you're part of a tyranny. Your characters change also that you're living the life. And and he was living his dream in some you know, you're 19, you're 20 years old, and women are available, booze is available, the club's available, you can go to the racetrack, you can play football, which he did. He was on the football team. So he had a, you know, along with doing something that he disparaged, you know, for being unfair and the police work and so forth. His other, the other part of his life was joyous. It was fantastic. And later, when he got married, he had an open marriage and, and with Eileen, his first wife. And, you know, they spent time in Morocco. And he said to his wife, you know, I'd love to have an, a Moroccan woman. She said, yeah, yeah, well, go for it, Eric or George. I don't know what she'd call him from one or the other. And he went, he slept with Moroccan women. He thought, I love this, this spicy, they have a spicy breath and so forth. 
Uh, he was very sensitive to smell. He mentions a lot in his work. If you read his books, he's always talking about the smell, smell of books, the smell of the lower classes. Even, even philosophically, he's talking smelly little orthodoxies. You know, so he's highly sensitive. Or the smell of flowers, the smell of a woman's, Burmese woman's skin and all that, or a Moroccan woman for that matter. He also carried on affairs when he was married with, with other women. I'm not condemning him. I'm only saying he was a highly priapic person who who had a lot of opportunities in Burma. And that's in my book too. You know, uh, it's not in Emma Larkin's book. It's not in the biographies. They, they, don't, they don't even speculate about it. But if you read his work, you see that's the man. I mean, can you imagine a 19 or 20-year-old in Burma where women are available and you can go to a brothel and pay 25 rupees to have sex? He's saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I think I'll stay home and read a book. No, not at all. It's a big adventure. It was a big adventure that he was Fantastically. on. Fantastically, yes, yes. I mean, to be abroad like that in, in a culture and a country so radically different from England of that time. And you do a great job of drawing his character and his temperament. He wasn't above having fun, but he was far from the most outgoing of his cohort. He was kind of an introvert, a reader, a little bit grumpy and antisocial too. Yes, that's true because... Well, there's various reasons for that. One is he was socially awkward. So he was raised, his father was much older than his mother. So his father was a, a retired elderly man when, when Orwell was a teenager. And so his father didn't give him a lot of guidance as, you know, how to be a man. He went to an English public school, wore a top hat, wore, a, you know, a white tie to class, gowns and all that. Very, very formal. So he never... He never had any social sense. He never, uh, with women, with other people, no small talk. It, had he gone on like his friends, Cyril Connolly, do you know Cyril Connolly? Uh, uh, Christopher Holland. Cyril Connolly wrote a wonderful book called The Unquiet Grave. And he was a very, very good friend of Orwell's, both in prep school and also at Eton. Well, he went to Oxford and, the, and Hollis, his other friend, and Runciman. Guys from Eton went to Oxford. Well, Orwell didn't go to Oxford. And at Oxford, he would have met women. He would have been at Oxford at the same time as Evelyn Waugh. And if you read a biography of Evelyn Waugh, <laughs> Evelyn Waugh describes how every day he was at Oxford, he was drunk. That he started drinking in the morning and drank all day, and then had a nap, and then ate, and then got drunk, and then vomited, and then went to bed, or, went to, or stayed up till 3 o'clock in the morning. So it was like an absolute orgy of binging. Eventually, Evelyn Waugh left. But Evelyn Waugh was in the same crew with Orwell's friends. If Orwell had gone to Oxford, he would have been with Cyril Connolly and Evelyn Waugh, and he would have been disgusted by it. His experience of drunkenness was all in, in Rangoon. But I have the feeling, although he was shy... He was very tall and he was awkward. He felt very self-conscious being tall. He was six foot, over six foot two. He had more fun than is given credit for. His great, one of his problems in, in um, the colonial service was, the colonial service was mainly Scottish. It was Scottish a lot in Africa. It was Scottish in Hong Kong. 
New Zealand was settled by Scottish people. Orwell was very anti-Scots. He was maybe Scottish himself, Scottish ancestry, but he had a prejudice against Scottish people based on his experiences in prep school, where his prep school uh, master was a very rah-rah, wear a kilt, sing Scottish songs, and it repelled him. So he didn't get along with Scottish people. It's, I, it's in my book, I mean, how he just found them... He found them tribalistic. He found them anti-English, and the Scots are anti-English. They were they had a bad time, a bad period with uh, English landlords and so forth. So that the Scots felt colonized by the English, but Orwell felt that too. So his it was it's a it's a complex time in his life, and a time when he actually grew up and needed and and adjusted to it. The amazing thing is what happened afterwards, which was, as I said, he completely dropped out. He had no salary. He was a dishwasher. Can you imagine going from being a, a, a policeman with a future, would have had a pension, would have had you know a lot of power, going from that to being a dishwasher in Paris? You know, it's amazing, really. But that was that was how deeply he felt about it. Yeah, he actively sought out a life as one of what I guess you would characterize as one of the oppressed as opposed to being an oppressor. He yeah, wanted to know what it was like to live that life. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So I want to pivot back to your biography in, in the way that it kind of parallels Orwell's. You talked a bit ago about your time in the Peace Corps and how you had been in Central Africa and had been a teacher in a bush school in the British territory of Nyasaland. Yep. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. It's now Malawi. Yeah, it was called Niasaland and, and it became Malawi. So I was there in the late 60, in late 63, in the middle of the, July 64, it became independent. But for seven months, I, w I had the privilege of being in a British colony. I mean, it was a territory actually. And it's, it's just amazing. You know, the Union Jack, the singing God Save the Queen. <laughs> the clubs didn't have African members. You know, it was just wonderful. And, and I stayed you, after after the Peace Corps. I stayed in Africa. I stayed for four more years, not in the Peace Corps, but just as a teacher. Okay, so can you talk a little bit about who you were when you arrived in Africa versus who you were when you left? Like, what were some of the big changes in you? How did that place and that set of experiences mark you and set you on your life course? Profoundly, it set me profoundly on my life course. I mean, that's it's a very good question, but. I graduated from Medford High School in Medford, Massachusetts, and then went to the University of Maine and the University of 
Massachusetts, Massachusetts, and then and Maine first, then Massachusetts. And I really had very little experience of the world. Although in sixty, in the early sixties, people, it, the the world was changing, radically changing. I was different from my bro- my brother's experience. They're two or three years older than me. They didn't know the freedoms of the early sixties, which I, as soon as I got to high school. I had a girlfriend. We, you know, drinking, drugs, rock and roll, sex, and violence—no violence, actually—but sexual freedom, let's say, was suddenly there for us. So I experienced that. I had that, but I didn't know much about the world. I had plenty of personal freedom, but I didn't know much about the world. I felt sort of—I um, felt overlooked. I think. I may say, you know, one of my schoolmates was Michael Bloomberg. I was in the peace. I was in the Boy Scouts with Michael Bloomberg. He felt the same. I mean, I, I've talked to him since about it. We both went to Medford High School. He went to John Hopkins. I went to UMass. And then we, you know, obviously our lives diverged, but we didn't know anything about how the world worked. When I went to Africa, I suddenly realized how. It was the period of liberation in Africa, countries becoming independent. Kenya became independent. Tanganyika became uh, Tanzania. Uganda became independent. These are all 62 and 63. Uh, Zambia became independent. The Congo became independent. All in, the, all in the early 60s. When I was, you know, there, just before I was there and after. So I was, I was present for the birth of these countries, for the liberation of these countries. And even for the violent, the, the liberation movements, because I knew guerrilla soldiers, I was actually kicked out of the Peace Corps by uh, being affiliated, by helping a, an anti-government group. I was kicked out of the Peace Corps two months before I, my time was up. But, but th- these guerrilla, guerrillas who were uh, rebel ministers in Malawi and, they, and later went to Uganda helped me out. I mean, they got me a job in Uganda. I became... A, professor of English in Uganda on the strength of, you know, they said, well, we got, you got kicked out of the Peace Corps, but we're going to help you. So that was all, you know, it was a baptism of fire in a way. It was a disgrace for my parents. It was a disgrace for the Peace Corps, but it made me, you know, um, and so it was a profound change. And also I felt I wanted to become a doctor, as I said earlier. Then I thought I could be a writer. I was a Tremendous reader, as long as I was a science student. But all of this experience gave me something to write about. I thought, I now see how the world is working. And I, I had a subject, which I hadn't, hadn't had before. To a very large extent, the same thing happened to Orwell. So Blair, the policeman, quit after five years. After five years, he had a book. He had this chunk of, exper- a chunk of experience. Well, it wasn't the book he should have written, but it was a book that he wrote. And then he had read Jack London, People of the Abyss, which was about going to the East End and living and finding out how the poor live. And so he had that book, Down and Out in Paris and London, is a book modeled after a Jack London book. So he had, those were two books. After that, he wrote some novels, then the Civil War. Each of his books gave him experience each of his experiences give, gave him subjects for his books the same thing happened to me the other thing that happened to him and happened to me 
and happens to a lot of people is when you go away from home and you don't have people breathing down your neck and asking, what are you going to do with your life? And did you go to church? And uh, are you in a state of grace and all of that? (laughs) And how are you going to make a living? You find out who you are. You're actually doing what you want to do. It's a process that Jung calls individuation. And this process happened to Eric Blair when he was in Burma. He found out who he was. He wasn't a policeman. He was a, re- he was a rebel. But that experience of policeman being away from his parents, being away from England, being among all these people, showed him who he was and what he wanted to do. It, and it, it showed me, you know, all those years ago, you know, 60 years ago, I discovered what it was I wanted to do. And as a matter of fact, in, this, in my book, Burma Sahib, I used a lot of my own experience, my own insights and experiences, sexual experiences, social experiences, you know, I don't know, experience with authority. I used those, I extrapolated those and used them when I was describing Orwell because Orwell was of the same mind and it was very helpful to me. I w- one of the things that Orwell did, he did it in school and he did it in, in Burma. He wrote poems. Well, I did too. Kind of embarrassed about it, you know, but, but he wrote poems. <laughs> he never reprinted his poems. Now and then he alluded to them. And now, now and then he printed a few lines of paragraphs. So, But I wrote poems, you know, and, and, and I, was, I could relate to that. When you're very young and you're having this experience, you relate, you, it, it sounds like I can make that into a poem. You know, you don't think of, um, it's going to be a novel or a short story. I'll, you say, well, it could be a poem. So some of the poems in the book are Orwell's and some of them are mine. <laughs> so, but that's something he did. Later, he was very embarrassed. He never told anyone he did it. But, and he, he realized he gave up writing poetry. He thought poems. He, he didn't read a lot, of, but he loved Kipling's poetry. And his poems are kind of Kipling-esque, actually. Mine, I don't know what mine were. Mine were, uh, you know, it was the era of beatniks. I suppose they were, they were like, Beat poetry, Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, something like that. But that so there were a lot of correspondences that I felt. Well, sure, and that, like when you talk about Orwell and slash Eric Blair and these years in Burma and how they formed his character and set him on his course and basically gave him his life project, like the great thematic concerns of his work and his the larger project of his life was forged there. And I think we could, I I guess I would characterize it as he was a writer who was deeply interested in power and was very much against totalitarian political and cultural structures and religious structures. Like that kind of is who he was. I'm curious to know about how you would characterize your life project. You said you found it in Africa is there is there a way to kind of boil it down that you feel like is the through line of your entire creative life in the way that it was for Orwell? Yes, well, I came from a, I would suppose, a lower middle class family. My parents were very intelligent and they were great readers, but my father never made a lot of money. And I think I came from a, a background. My father was very anti-clerical. He was pious. He went to church, but he didn't like priests. Or he, th- he thought that priests had an easy time of it. And he saw them as 
privileged and that they didn't know anything about the world, which is true, actually. You know, this, this would be the 1950s or so. He didn't carry it on. He wasn't stridently anti-clerical, but he didn't take priests seriously. My mother probably did. So I come from a basic religious background, low middle class background, a family with no power, with very little money, large family, seven children in the family. And I think that I became, that, that I was resentful of authority, resentful of politics. I remember everyone praised Kennedy. And at a time when, when Kennedy was elected in 1960, it was, the election was, yeah, 1960, and they're praising him. And I thought, he's just another privileged Bostonian. You know, I mean, he's had, a, he's had everything handed to him. And... Um, he wasn't a leader of in civil rights. Uh, he wasn't any kind of campaigner. You know, at that time, uh, the civil rights movement was in its infancy. He didn't support it the way Lyndon Johnson did, for example. There were miscegenation laws all over the United States in 1963 when you know when he was president, and then when he was shot. So I, you know, people used to praise. I never. I always thought, well, he's privileged, and that's privileged people become president. If you have money, you have power. And so I think that coalesced in me. I felt angry about that. I felt resentful about that. I felt overlooked, and I thought, you know, had I, if I had money, I would have gone to Harvard. If I had uh, some advantages, I might have, I didn't know anyone who was a writer, for example. My family didn't know writers. They didn't know people of accomplishment. So I felt very isolated. But when you feel isolated, you become a reader. You're, and so, I, so reading actually was a great help to me. But I used the library. I didn't actually have the money to buy a book until I was in college. I never bought a book. In high school, I, I read everything. I read everything. But I used the library. So I felt very much um, behind the eight ball. And so when I was in Africa, I began to relate to people who were in the same position of me. I didn't, as me, I, I didn't feel that in the States, except in terms of the civil rights movement, of segregation. I, I did feel we lived, in a, we lived in a very unequal society, still unequal for that matter. And I felt um, the liberation movements in Africa stimulated me. And so I became affiliated with one. As I said, I was affiliated to the extent that I got, they called it terminated early from the Peace Corps. But mine was a famous case because I was affiliated with an anti-government group that uh, was bent on taking over, taking away from power, away from the, the elected president, who then stayed president for the next 30 odd years, Dr. Banda. Anyway, these were anti-Dr. Banda people, but they, I, I loved them. I love their spirit. I love their revolutionary zeal. And at the same time, you know, and um, that time was 65 when I left the Peace Corps. Che Guevara was in Dar es Salaam. I was in Dar es Salaam in 65 when Che Guevara was there. And I knew various people who knew him. I didn't. This came out later. He was there in, you know, in incognito. But, um, but the Malawi guerrilla force, you know, the rebel ministers, people who had dropped out of the government, 
were affiliated with them. I was very stimulated by the revolutionary spirit of these people and the fact that they were they saw injustice and they were going to take over a country. Now, this is a very simplistic thing. They were not as high-minded as I thought they were, and many of them would, were just as selfish as um, anyone else. So I suppose I was also disillusioned by that, by the, you know, the, pres the, the present president of Uganda, Yoweri Museveni, was a student of mine in Uganda in 19, would have been 60, 67 or 68. He was a student. <laughs> so he's been, he's been president for 30 years. So, you know, he he started off, I I, I was at, uh, friends with a lot of people, you know, like, give it to them, anti-colonial and all that. Let's get Museveni elected and all that. He won't go away. So I do feel disillusioned by a lot of the African revolutionaries. But they, you know, that's that's what happens. But that's the making of you. Disillusionment is part of the life experience and, um, and disappointment. Also, the risk involved, that the risk that, that I took uh, when I was in Africa. All kinds of strange things happened, dangerous things. But I was single, I was young, and I thought, well, this is an adventure. So I did a lot of foolish things politically and even, you know, uh, in, in helping people. But, you know, there you go. It was, it, it was the making of me, I think. Making me as a, as a man, as a writer, as an American, I suppose. Yeah, so that was very helpful. It happened to him. I'm very, you know that 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 process. One great thing that Kennedy did in it, when he when Kennedy gave his inaugural address, people always quote, "Don't ask what you can do for your country and all that." One of the parts of the, his inaugural address was about helping third world countries. He said, "How many of you could go? You could go to Ghana. You could be a a doctor in Ghana. You could go to Africa. You go to South America. You could, you know, a lot of it was." based on a kind of anti-communism. But he was talking about go and help, help the world. You know, it was a great message, actually. Can you think of any president since then? Biden, Obama, if the, even the best, you know, the best men. They're not saying go and help people. They're just saying, you know, <laughs> do your best, be a good American, all that. They're not saying give two or three years of your life, live in poverty in Ecuador or Ghana or the Congo. They're not saying that. But they did say it then. So the early system was, was a, a period of uh, idealism. Go and go and be part of the process. You know, you're not saving people, but you're you're part of their their pro their political process. So that was a great thing, too. That somewhat relates to, to Orwell, but not entirely. Because the system that he was in was the a very rigid colonial system. And he was in at a time when it was more rigid than ever. I mean, they were very intransigent. They hated local people. They hated the natives. You must not associate with them. Don't speak to them. One of the, Orwell uses, he said, the difference between us and them is we are sahibs and they're dirt. They're dirt. Someone said that to Orwell. They're dirt. Who's dirt? Burmese, they're dirt. Indians, they're dirt. Well, you know, when a 19 or 20-year-old hears that, he's kind of shocking, maybe. They're dirt, you know? Not they'll learn, they'll get an education, maybe they've got a lot to learn. No, they're beyond the pale. So 
when I think about your time in Africa and I, I think about Orwell's time in Burma, in addition to forming you politically and to, you know, as you said, causing this disillusionment with political power and the people who tend to exist in those realms, it also really marked you as a traveler to be out of your home territory and to be out in the world exploring is certainly a through line of your life and work. I mean, that's uh, what you are known for is as an inveterate just traveler and a citizen of the of the world. The travel that I did in those years, say from 63 to 71, 72, I was, I was working, you know, I, I was a teacher. So I, I didn't have any money. My, you know, my parents didn't give me any money, didn't have it to give me, but that's all right. But if you, you can go and work in a place and earn money and then travel. So when I was in Africa, when I went, when I was in the Peace Corps, even when I was in the Peace Corps, I went to Nigeria. I went to what was then Rhodesia and Zambia. I went to Kenya. Just travel, you know, on um, vacations. One of the most formative experiences I had was they said you have to do something constructive on your vacations, you know, on a long vacation. I worked at a hospital. I said I still wanted to be a doctor. I worked at a hospital, a leper colony on the, on, on uh, Lake Nyasa. It's now called Hansen's disease. So the word leper is very um, obsolete. But doing that with priests who are committed to helping the priests who are doctors and nuns who are doctors. Although I was a, I was a teacher, this experience working in this hospital, I went, I think I went three or four times for long periods, maybe two or three weeks at a time, just working in the hospital with patients and also, because they were isolated, they, they still kept a lot of their customs, you know, dancing, drumming, you know, they had spirit dances and so forth. So my first experience of travel was that. Then I was in Uganda. Europe wasn't far away. So one of my Uganda vacations was I went to England for the first time. And then later, um, I traveled much more widely. But because I had made a lot of friends, I met a lot of friends who were Indians who then went back to India. So I visited them in India. And India became a, a touchstone for me, a place to go. Does, do people do that now? You know, I don't know. I, I think they go, that they have college trips and so sponsored trips. They also have the internet and they think, well, I can look at a Google map. I have a friend. I can social media with somebody in Burma or with, uh, I don't know, where Egypt. And they feel as if they know the world. Well. Social media is very misleading and the internet is very misleading. It's full of half-truths and lies. And so nothing can compare with actually going to a place and living there, getting sick, getting well, eating the food, making a friend. So that's actually physically doing it is, is, is what happened to me. It started early in my life. Uh, I think reading made me a traveler. Just reading travel books did it or novels set in far off places. But it, uh, I, I used to fantasize about travel all the time. Even, you know, when I was, when I was a boy scout, when I was 12 years old, when I was 13 years old, I fantasized about going to a far off place, going to the Congo, going to Alaska, going to, you know, just going away.
also, it's, if you come from a very large family, you either love the family and it's a cocoon, you know, of love and happiness, or you just want to go as far away as possible from them. And my, that was my wish. I just wanted to get away, have my own space. I wanted to, I, I, I wanted to separate myself from my family. That was a very early feeling. I think Orwell felt the same um, of getting away. He went to private school, prep school, then he went to eat. He never really lived at home. And after Eton, where he'd, you know, he'd been there for, uh, it would have been three or four years, maybe longer. He was home briefly. He took the exams to go to Burma, and then he went to Burma. So he never really had a, a, a home life the way an average English person would have it. Well, you said in an interview that I was reading, the, your interlocutor said, what do you owe your parents? And you said, quote, their indifference to my writing, to my struggles in general, it gave me something to prove. Uh, did I say that? Yeah, well, it's true. I don't know when I said that. But, it, but they, yes, they were indifferent. They were slightly embarrassed by uh, my college writing and you know, high school writing. You know, like you're putting yourself out there, you're going to embarrass yourself. And the other thing is, if you think you're going to be, how are you going to make a living? <laughs> Turned out I've made a very good living as a writer and uh, a very rewarded living. It meant I had to write a lot of books, but, you know, very happy doing it. They loved books and they read, but they just couldn't imagine. They didn't know any writer. They couldn't imagine how you made a living as a writer. How did you make a living? They would have said, be a teacher, be a lawyer, be a doctor, be a veterinarian, work in a restaurant, be a waiter, you know, do some menial job, but at least, you know, it's a living. Hard work. Uh, the idea that you're to be a painter or a poet or a writer, very far from it. So they, they, they weren't, I mean, they were indifferent to my writing. It was, it was slightly worse than that. They were slightly embarrassed and um, kind of offended by it, to tell you the truth. And my, my first book came out, I don't know whether they said this in the review, but when my first book was published, this may also be related to Orwell now that I mention it. So my first book was called Waldo. It was published in 1967. I started it when I was in college. I worked in it in Africa, and it was published when I was in Africa. Waldo. It's a basically faintly surrealistic novel inspired by Nathaniel West or uh, James Purdy. Was you know these kind of rebellious comic dark comic. My mother wrote me a letter. I got it in Uganda. She said. I'm, I feel it's very painful for me to write this letter. I've read your book, and I must tell you, I think it's trash. You should be ashamed of yourself for writing it. Would you show this, and then she named a number of people, would you show this to so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so? Don't you think you'd be ashamed to show it? Now, this is a book that was published by Houghton Mifflin, who was my publisher until recently. I mean, they stayed as my publisher. It got a couple of good reviews. It got a good review in the New Yorker in 67. I was 25, my first book, quite an achievement, I think. As a book, you know, looking at it from this distance, probably had a lot of flaws, not a great book, but it was a, my first book. Your first book isn't necessarily a masterpiece. But mother said, my mother said, this book is trash. It was on an air, a blue air letter 
form. And she said, it pains me to have to write this letter. Okay, where is that letter now? It's framed in my house. I have a house in Cape Cod. <laughs> I framed the letter. I kept, I kept the letter. I kept the letter. And I made copies of it. And that letter was, it was always on my desk, that letter. Your book is trash. You should be ashamed. I, I was imagining it as you were saying that. I was imagining you using it as a blurb on the cover of the book. <laughs> yeah, it could have been. But, you know, it's not, very, it's not strange. It's not strange. George Bernard Shaw's parents hated his work. Henry Miller's mother said, your book is garbage. Your, your books are garbage. Uh, Hemingway, Henry Miller, Scott Fitzgerald's mother hated his work. You know, there's almost, uh, George Simenon said, a writer tends to be someone with a mother problem. That he, his mother hated his work. His, uh, Simenon, you know George Simenon, um, May Gray, and many many wonderful novels. Um, late in life, he wrote a book called A Letter to My Mother. I wrote a novel called Motherland, which is about my mother, about my family, about my mother. But it's really about uh, uh, how my mother disparaged my work. You know, it was I'm not getting even, or anything, but actually that was yeah, it was the making of me. If my mother had said, your work is wonderful, I've shown it to everyone, it's perfect, I would have thought, what's wrong with me? There's something, my mother likes my work, what have I done? You know? <laughs> because I always positioned myself as a rebel. I was, and so my mother said that, people used to say, you must have been so, I said, no, no. That was kind of a validation of, of what, that I was doing something right. My mother hated my, my books. They never read, my, my parents never read my work. That's okay. That's like even later in life when I made money, when I used to give them money, when I you know helped them buy a house and all that, they still didn't. So uh, they didn't read book. But why would they? You know, my father wouldn't. My father didn't read John Updike. He didn't read Philip Roth. He didn't read me. He didn't read Norman Mailer. My father read history books. So my father, you know, they weren't natural readers of my work. Although I may say, now I have two children who write who publish books. They're very accomplished. One is called Louis Theroux and the other is Marcel Theroux. Marcel has published five novels. Louis has published three books of kind of memoir. They live in England. They have TV shows and so forth. I'm a passionate reader of their books. If you read someone's work, you know who they are. You know what's on their mind. You know the, what amuses them. You know what repels them. You know, you, you know everything about them. People say, I'd like to know more about you. I said, well, you know, we're not going to hang out. Read my book. Read my books. You know, I've read 55. <laughs> read them. You'll know everything about me. Everything right. is, there will be no mystery. <laughs> no mystery at all. Not, nothing at all. Nothing at all. Just read them. As a matter of fact, people who know you personally, they think, oh, he's got a lot of charm. Lunchtime charm. Very funny. And so on. read my work and see, no, no, it's a little more complicated than that. Quite a bit more complicated than that. But there you are. If, if people are really interested in you, they read your work. If they're not, or if they want to be spared, they don't want to know the truth about you, then that won't happen. Orwell's parents disparages where they didn't like, you know, the idea that he became a tramp. Can you imagine his father was a, a civil servant in India, respectable, opium agent class four. That's what he was. He's going to write a book read a book about his son washing dishes. <laughs> like, talk about, you know, a meeting of minds. No, I don't think so. So <laughs> they would have been embarrassed by it. But they were never, 
readers of his. And they died before his great fame and, and, and great success came. As I said, he, he died young. Too. Well, yeah, he did. I mean, he, he almost didn't live to see any success. He did see it at the very tail end of his life. But That's right. that is where your path and his path as writers diverge. Uh, one, you've outlived him by a, a several a decades. And then two, you have had success as a writer in publishing and selling books. Can you talk about going from an unknown with the publication of your debut to breaking out and starting to really find a readership? Yeah, that's not many people ask that question, but I mean, it's an interesting question because it's 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 a process. It doesn't happen. I mean, some people write a book and it becomes an instant hit. Harper Lee wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. It was an immediate hit. It sold in the, I don't know, a lot, a million or whatever. And she never wrote another book. Other people have it differently. It helps to, I think, struggle, find your voice, find your readership. With me, my great piece of luck was when I was in Uganda working on my first novel, and I was writing a novella at the time, I met the writer V.S. Naipaul. Later, he became winner of the Nobel Prize. I uh, wrote a book about this, about... It's called Servidia's Shadow. I became a friend of his, but not an equal friend. I, I became kind of less a friend, a kind of assistant, a shadow. Uh, I drove him around in my car and so forth. I interpreted, I spoke Swahili. It was his first experience of Africa. He was afraid of Africa. I became a friend. To make a very long story short, he was my mentor. He read my book. He said, this is interesting, keep at it. I visited him in London. I then moved to England and we became friends. The first book that made an impact was one that I saw. So I was teaching at the University of Singapore for three years. I left Singapore and wrote a book about Singapore. I had published at that point four other novels. They had done moderately well. You know, got decent reviews, moderate sales. But then I wrote a book called St. Jack. St. Jack uh, got good reviews. It became a movie with Peter Bogdanovich. People think that I wrote The Great Railway Bazaar and that was the beginning of my great career, but it wasn't. St. Jack as a novel, it's a funny novel. I've read it, I read it a couple of years ago. It's still a good book. It's a funny book. It's set in Singapore. It's about a guy having a midlife crisis but then decides to live his dream. I won't spoil the great story. And the movie was, um, Ben Gazzara was in the movie, Peter Bogdanovich directed it. The movie was interesting and it was, it was praised and so forth. But the combination of having a, a reasonably successful book and a movie, this was, the book came out in, six, in 73, the movie came out in mid to late 70s. That was a great thing for me. I mean, and so that was helpful. So I, after I quit my job in Singapore, I thought, I don't want another job. I really hated having a boss. I hated, I hated academia a lot. And I still have a lot of reservations about academia. But I thought, I've published, at that point I had published three novels and a book of short stories. Then I published St. Jack, there's five books. 
Then I published another one. I thought, if I can publish a book every year, a novel, a travel book, or whatever, I can make a living. I was living... I, I, I didn't have a lot of money, but it wasn't expensive to live in England at the time. I was living in rural England. My rent was very little. I just lived in a cottage. My wife was very discon disconnected and and disliked living in the country. She, nothing for me to do. She was a feminist. I want a job, she said. You know, She eventually got a job in London and we moved to London. But I didn't have a lot of expenses. I didn't know anyone who had money. The great thing about living in England was I was living with people, with other writers who didn't make money. No one I knew made money. And they were really good writers too. V.S. Pritchett, Angus Wilson, even Kingsley Amos, my friends, Jonathan Rabin, Ian McEwan. I knew him when he was a very young writer. He wasn't making any money. No one was making money. But, you know, so it's okay. It's very, very equal. It's not like living in New York and somebody's getting you know, a huge advance. I was just living in a, um, in a modest way, but I had enough to buy a house eventually in England. And so I found that you don't, you, you become a writer by stages. You, you don't have, if you don't have a, an instant success, you learn how to write. You learn what a good book is. You learn what a bad book is. If you have a mentor like I had with V.S. Naipaul, it happens. It takes a long time, actually, and quite a lot of modest living. You don't, you, you know, you can't, you're not, you're not living in any kind of luxury. But if your friends don't have any money, if they're good writers, and you don't have any money, you don't feel, don't feel put upon. Then what happened was, in the seventies, I didn't have a, so I had a book, and then another book, and then another book. I wrote a book called The Black House. I turned it in. I didn't have another book in mind. So I thought, I'll write a travel book. So I wrote, I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll take a train. I'll leave London. I'll go to Paris. I'll go to Istanbul. I'll go to Tehran. I'll go to Afghanistan. I'll go to India. I'll just keep going. I'll go to Burma. I'll go to Singapore. I'll go, go, go. Then I'll come back on the Trans-Siberian. There's a, there's a book. Get this train, then get that train, then get this train. I thought, and I remember I mentioned it to my publisher. They said, gee, that's a good idea. Want, want uh, some money? I, so they gave me $7,000. Well, I spent it before I finished the book. But I wrote the book. Anyway, I thought, gee, there's a book. And I came back. It surprised me. No one had, had done that. So that was a highly successful book. To this day, it, it sold a million copies. I mean, it, sold, it, it, it was a living. If I'd never written anything since, I probably could have you know, supported myself. But then also that, that made me think, well, I can do that again. You know, that's not difficult. I'll go to South America. I'll write a book about that. I'll go to China. I'll write a book about that. I'll travel around England. I'll write a book about that. I'll go to India. Ditto. I'll go to the Pacific. Ditto. So I've written a dozen travel books based on the fact that I did it. It's not difficult. The, the trip can be challenging or expensive, but you come back and you have this, you have this an unshaped chunk of experience and that's the book. That's the book. You know, you don't, it's not fiction. It's not, you know, postmodernism or anything like that. It's just your experience. What happened to you? And you're writing about, I was writing about places that were either unknown or little known. And that became part of my living. But I thought of, always thought of myself as a novelist. But the thing about travel is when you're traveling, you get ideas. So the travel then stimulated ideas, uh, which I, you know, this 
Burma Sahib, the book about Orwell, uh, that was stimulated by travel, by going to Burma. If I hadn't been to Burma, I probably wouldn't have been able to write this book. So it was travel. And I never got, I applied for Guggenheim twice and was turned down. I applied for a, um, uh, a, 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 what's the other one? um, NEA or? Yeah, yeah, I I applied for all of those. I I never got them. I didn't get a MacArthur Genius Grant. I I never got a grant. I don't know why. I I applied for Guggenheim when I had published five novels. And I said, I need, I need, um, I was living humbly in England. And I said, would I just need some money to support my, I had two children, wife. You know, we regret to inform you. Then I thought, you know, I don't really need it. If I, if I keep reviewing books, taking trips, writing, I, I, you know, I, I don't need it. And I, and I reached a conclusion, no one needs it. No one needs it. No one needs a genius grant. You, can, you want to write a book? Write the book. Maybe you'll have to have a job. And you'll write it in the evening or the early morning, but your book will get written. You don't need to get money, free money for it. Someone who writes music, plays, poetry, or paints pictures, yeah, they probably need money. A writer doesn't need that. They don't need it. It's I, I, I absolute. It's 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 bogus that that you need it. You can do it if you have the will to write it. You'll do it. You will do it, and it'll be a better book because it's more of a a struggle to do. And also, if you're writing a book and you're supporting yourself and the book's no good, you'll see, I'm wasting my time. I'm wasting my time. This is a book that should not get written. A worthy book, a great idea for a book, it will get written. It will get written every time, I think. So I'm I'm not really disparaging scholarships or anything like that, but no one needs a genius grant. Some, as I said, some people do, but writers don't need it. I don't even believe in creative writing courses. I, I think what they what they give you is encouragement. So you get someone encouraging you, like Naipaul did. They're encouraging. They read, oh, this is good. Oh, this is good. They're not teaching you how to write. You have to find out how to write. In some cases, a creative writing course is bad because. You become imitative. There's there's too much reading involved and too much contact with other people. And so the other people, you know, they're reading each other. They say, well, this is good, that's good, and there's too much talk. What you need is isolation. So to write a book, I would say, yeah, go to Africa, write your book there. Go to India, write your book there. Get a job in Mexico, write your book there. Well, you, you have certainly been industrious. More than 50 books published in your career. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you now some live are, in... Some are short, now, some are long. But still, 50, that's a lot. That's a lot, a lot of hard work. And you now live both in Hawaii and Cape Cod. Yeah. And right. you're still you're still cooking. You're still writing. You're still traveling. I always ask people at the end of our time together what else they might be working on. Do you have another book or multiple books in the works? Uh, yeah, I have, funnily enough. I have, um, first I would say that I'm 82 years old, right? And a lot of people at 82 are done. Philip Roth gave up writing. Henry Miller was still writing in his 80s. Many, you know, some were, some weren't. Uh, Simonon was working in his 80s. I think this book, Burma Sahib, is as good as anything I've written. 
it was the, the idea of it was a gift. And it, it so happened I could use my experience in Burma and my reading of Orwell and my reading in general, because I read all the books that Orwell read. I read H.G. Wells, Tolstoy, Jack London. I read the books that he read. So, you know, it's just stimulated by that. I have a book of short stories that I'll publish next year. Half of them have been in magazine, New Yorker and Atlantic and magazines like that. And I have a book, so that will come out next year. Later this year, I'm going to set off on a trip. I'm not going to tell you where it is, but it's a book for travel. And my last two travel books, one was in the deep south. I traveled around the south, Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama. The book is called Deep South. It was a road trip. Then I took a road trip in Mexico on the Plain of Snakes. Wonderful experience, actually. That, that was my last travel book. And I, I have a road trip in mind. I'll start later this year, uh, maybe early summer or so. It will take a year or so. The trip will take a year or so. And I'll have a book. God knows how old I'll be, you know, when I finish it. But it's a book. When you write, when you when you take a trip, you have a book. You know, you want to write a book? Take a trip. People do it all the time. Might not be a great book, but it, it's it, it'll be a book. You know, I went down the Nile. There's a book. I, I taught yoga in India. There's a book. I took a trip to Canada. There's a book. You know, people do it all the time. Down the Mississippi, up the Yangtze. There's a book. So you know that you have a book at the end of it, and you just hope that it's a good book. So I have that in mind. So those two. So we have Burma Sahib, which is coming out in February. Uh, the Book of Short Stories next year. Travel book. If I survive, <laughs> I'll see you again. <laughs> well, that would be great. And it's an honor to have you on the show. Uh, any last advice for travelers? You, you're such an experienced traveler. You must have learned quite a few things over the years about how best to do it. Like, especially as a writer, like, like tricks of the trade in terms of traveling well, and also making sure that you're documenting properly as you go so that the book in question turns out well. I always think of, a, well, first I wrote a book called the Tao of travel. It's a, of every travel book that I've I'd read 300, 400 books quoted in it, the Tao of travel. I was thinking a, a potential traveler should read that, read the this anthology. But the main one of the quotes in the book is by Flaubert. He said, "Travel shows us how small we are," and I think that's true. You need to be humble. You should realize that you're small. That you're not. You can't say, "I'm an American. You own. You know, we've given you so much. I'm here to cash in on that." You have to realize you're small. You need to be humble. Small watchful. If you're a woman, I think you need to be very careful. I w if I had a daughter, I would say, don't travel alone, travel with other people. Because in many parts of the world, women are taken advantage of. They're taken advantage of everywhere, sabotaged. But I think you need to be very watchful. And I would say, take notes, write everything down. You may not write a book at the end of it, but you'll have that, that experience between covers. And I would say take as little technology with you as possible. I wouldn't take a laptop. Take a phone, maybe. But use a pen. Use a pen. Use a notebook. And ideally, 
work in a place, get a job in a place. You'll find out how people really live. You'll find out what, what, what trials they are. People sometimes say to me, you know, when Trump was president, they said, foreigners have said to me, didn't you want to leave? And I said, like, well, I go to Thailand. I said, like, I'm going to go to Thailand, drop out because Trump is president. I'm going to go to Thailand and live in a, where there's a, an absolute monarch, where people are very poor, where you don't speak the language. Just because Trump is president, I'm going to be a parasite in that country. So if you're going to be, if you're going to live in another country, contribute something to the country. Teach English or, you know, you don't, you don't want to just be an expatriate, but do something useful. So feel humble, be humble, be realize that you're small. And I think realize that other people are much more interesting than you are, that you have nothing, nothing to give them, but you could be a good listener. Learning the language is also a very big thing. It was with me in Africa. Those are to begin with, those are, that's my advice. Language, very important. Well, it's been great talking with you and congratulations on Burma Sahib. It was a pleasure to read and fun to get to explore this part of Orwell's life with somebody uh, written by somebody as learned as you and as invested in his life and work as you clearly are. So congratulations and I wish you all the best with whatever comes next. Thanks very much, Brad. Great talking to you. All right, you guys, there we go. That was my conversation with Paul Theroux. His latest novel is called Burma Sahib, available now from Mariner Books. You can find Paul on the internet at paultheroux.com. Follow him on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Once again, the new novel is called Burma Sahib. Go get your copy immediately. Don't forget to subscribe to The Other People Show wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. If you would like to get my weekly email newsletter, you can sign up over at bradlisty.substack.com. I would love it if you did that. If you are a fan of this show, you can join the Other People Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Help keep the program going into the future. If you want to join the Other People Book Club, get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days, you can join over at the show's official website, otherppl.com. If you have a couple of minutes and you want to help me out a little bit, please give this show a rating wherever you listen. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is. Rate the show, review the show. It helps the show find new listeners. If you would like to get some other people apparel, a t-shirt or a sweatshirt, you can do that at otherppl.com. And finally, a quick plug for my latest book. It is a novel called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. So if you want to read my book or have me read it to you, that is possible. Again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right, so coming up on Wednesday, my guest will be Sarah Tomlinson. She has a new novel out called The Last Days of the Midnight Ramblers. It's available from Flatiron Books. Fun to catch up with Sarah. So stay tuned. <laughs>